0: we will spend some time together in god's word this afternoon Uh, i am i am excited to dig into the book of ezra with you today uh this may not ezra may not make like the top of all the the bible reading lists usually you see books like john or Romans, and everybody's always spending lots of time in Psalms, and there's good reason for that. But Ezra is a really, is a, takes place in a really exciting and biblically rich period in Israel's history. And what I mean when I say biblically rich is that we have a, a multiplicity of inspired perspectives on the book of Ezra, on this period in Israel's history. So you have psalms that were written during this time period. You have historical books that are written during this time period. You have prophets who were before the exile, but they were speaking forward and prophesying about this period in Israel's history, as we'll see today. You have prophets like Ezekiel who were prophesying during Ezekiel and Daniel, prophesying during this period. You have prophets like Zechariah and Haggai prophesying just immediately after this period. And so when you put all of that together, it's a unique spot in biblical history because you can get seven, eight different angles on exactly what is God doing. And then perhaps more pertinent for us what, could, what does God mean to communicate to us here in the year 2022 in Pasadena, California? And so I am excited to dig in. Ron did a great job introducing this new series last week, so we're just going to do a very quick survey of the timeline, where are we in history, and this is important. Pay attention, don't let your eyes glaze over during this introduction period of the sermon, because Ezra chapter 1, more than most chapters, you are not, there's drama in the text, but you are not going to understand the drama of the text if you don't understand something of where we are in history, and more importantly, if you don't let some of these other voices inform what God is doing. So, Ezra and Nehemiah, to recap, they span about a hundred years of Israel's history from roughly the mid-500s BC to the mid-400s BC, and it starts, this whole period is defined by the period of exile in Babylon, and that starts in about 605 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquers the southern kingdom of Judah uh, and and conquers Jerusalem. So this starts a series of three waves of Nebuchadnezzar taking waves of people from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the first wave was in 605. Israel's initially conquered. Uh, Some notable exiles that were taken in 605 were Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so you're thinking the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. Then in 597 BC, King Jehoiakim and his son Jehoiachin, they decide to rebel against Babylon, so Nebuchadnezzar himself comes back, he defeats them again, and this is the time when he takes, he takes a huge group of, of captives, but he also does something interesting for our text today, he plunders the temple. He doesn't destroy the temple yet, that's coming, but he takes the temple vessels and he takes them to Babylon and puts them in the house of his God. That's going to come back to us a little later today. Another wave of exiles were deported, including the prophet Ezekiel. And then finally, we come to the fateful year and event in Israel's history, 586 B.C., King Zedekiah rebels again. You would, have, you would have thought that the kings have learned their lesson. They've already been conquered twice. And this time, the book of Second Kings, chapter 25, tells us Nebuchadnezzar came back with all his army. And he raised Jerusalem to the ground. And he burned the temple. And that's it. The end of Jerusalem. The end of God's people and God's land. But there's a whisper there's a prophecy perhaps it's not the end about 50 years later the persian king cyrus takes the throne in babylon and that brings us to the events of our text so please turn with me to ezra chapter 1 ezra chapter 1 and we're together in the first year of cyrus king of persia Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord. "...that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to shesh the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels." All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Please pray with me. Father, please open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears to hear what you have to say to us from Ezra chapter 1 this morning. Lord, I pray that this text would work its way into our souls and light a glow of fire there full of courage and joy to do your will, to go on mission with you here and now in Pasadena in 2022. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Are you familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia? Go ahead, I want you to actually raise your hands if you're familiar Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, good. This is encouraging. You see, I feel like I had to ask because the other night with the, the youth group, I was with the middle schoolers and I asked them the same question and only two out of eight said that they had read it. And, and so I left heartbroken and thinking that probably Western civilization has failed If children are no longer reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and we should probably all just pack it up and and go home, Uh, but but you have restored my faith. I see that many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, series written to children. Um, The first book in that series, I'm a purist, and so there's only one choice for what the first book is. It's the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, the Magician's Nephew. That's obviously a prequel. And and if you disagree, then you're wrong, okay? In the first book, we find the four Pevensey children. uh, They accidentally land in a magical world. They hide in a wardrobe, and the wardrobe turns out to be a portal, and they end in the ice and snow of Narnia. And Narnia is in a thousand-year winter because it's under the wicked rule of the White Witch, an evil queen. Now, one of the first things that happens to the Pevensies in Narnia is they meet a well-to-do family, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And the Beaver family responds to them in a really strange way. I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider this. You know, if you landed in a strange world or even if you just traveled to a faraway country and you meet someone new, Maybe what you're expecting is that they like invite you over to tea, and then you go on your way. You go back to your land. You know, the Pevensey children are eager to be back in England, but that's not what Mr. and Mrs. Beaver do. They respond as though something big is happening. When they meet these children, they take them into hiding, and they begin to tell them a story. Now, what made the Beaver family treat them like this? Well, well, what caused it was a prophecy. There was a prophecy about four children, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve. And the prophecy said that when four children, human children, came to Narnia, that the rule of the white witch would be broken, would be over. Now, the children did not know what they had gotten themselves into, but this prophecy changed the course of their lives. They did not just go back to England. They found themselves on an adventure. Only a couple of days later, they're in an army marching against another army to defeat the White Witch. Something else was triggered, was signaled by the arrival of the Pevensey kids. Uh, It signaled the return of the great king from beyond the sea, Aslan. And this is what Mr. Beaver said. They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand. But in the dream, it feels as if it has some enormous meaning either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing that you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. Friends, in our text today, God's people, like the Pevensies, find themselves in enemy territory, They're in exile. This is a dark moment. But they too see a sign that a long-awaited prophecy is being fulfilled. You see, at the beginning of chapter 1, God's people are scared. They're in exile. They're broken. They're humbled. They're humiliated. But by the end of chapter 1, they are full of such joy and courage that they've decided to undertake a thousand-mile journey on foot. And we need to know what happened. Why the change? The main point of our text today could be summarized like this. God's sovereign commitment to keep his promises spurs us on to joyful, courageous sacrifice for his kingdom. So that is God's sovereign commitment to keep his promises. It's not God's best efforts to keep his promises. Well, I'll, I'll try to keep my promises to you. No, no, that's not the kind of God Ezra is going to tell us about. In, in chapter 1 of Ezra, we see a God who exercises complete mastery over the events of history. He will bring his word to pass. This is supposed to do something to us. This is supposed to do something in us. When we're confronted with a God who has this level of control, this level of sovereignty, it's supposed to produce an A courage that's unusual. It's meant to embolden us, to run risks, to join God in his mission, to say, I'll organize my entire life around following this God. Our text gives us three main points today. One, God's promise fulfilled in verses one to four. Point number two, God's people on the move in verses 5 and 6 and finally point 3 God's honor vindicated in verses 7 through 11 now let's dig in to point number 1 God's promise fulfilled look with me again at verse 1 in the first year of king cyrus king of persia that the word of the lord by the mouth of jeremiah might be fulfilled the lord stirred up the spirit of cyrus king of persia so that he made a proclamation We have to read very carefully. Right here in verse 1, we get the reason for the entire chapter, the reason for everything that happens afterwards. Did you catch it? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, it's like the writer writer is tripping over himself to tell us why. (laughs) This is a weird sentence structure, is it not? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Friends, when the Bible gives us a divine interpretation of a historical event, it's best that we sit up and listen. All the events that follow are in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. They're in order to fulfill a prophecy. Now, the text specifically mentions Jeremiah, and he's probably referring to Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11 or Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12. But I wonder if you know that Jeremiah is not the only prophet to prophesy about this event. He isn't. Isaiah has much to say on this, and Isaiah starts to unfold the meaning, to take us deeper into what is God doing with this prophecy. So we we are going to read several verses in the book of Isaiah. They're going to be up on the screen, and I invite you to turn there. Isaiah chapter 44 in your Bibles. I'm going to ask for your patience. Bear with me, because we, we have to pay attention to Isaiah. Isaiah is going to tell us what God wants to do in us through this text. And we don't want to miss it. So turn with me, Isaiah chapter 44, and starting in verse 21. Isaiah forty-four, twenty-one. As Jeff Perswell mentioned in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah transitions around chapter 40, and he starts preaching to the exiles. So this was meant for the people that we're going to read about in Ezra chapter 1. "'Remember these things, O Jacob, "'and Israel, for you are my servant.'" I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel." Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Pay attention. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, Who says of Jerusalem, "'She shall be inhabited,' and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, "'Be dry, I will dry up your rivers.' Who says of Cyrus, "'He is my shepherd.'" And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue the nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. And here it is. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. That is what? From the rising to the setting of the sun, the whole earth, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Did you catch it? Why did God do this? Why this prophecy? Do you know when Isaiah wrote this? A- at the very least 150 years before Ezra chapter 1. He wrote it when before Cyrus was born. This is an extraordinary measure. God said, "I'll tell you his name." And then Not only does he tell us exactly who will set his people free. Look, look at verses 4 through 6, chapter 45, 4 to 6. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you. Now go down to 6. Why? Why do I name you? Why this prophecy? Why is this happening in Ezra? That the people may know that I am the Lord and there is no other church family. Do you know that this morning? There is no other. This is the God with whom we have to do. This is the God we gather together each week to worship. There is no other power in heaven or on earth that can contend with him. Let's pause here for a moment. Friends, God's sovereignty can be A difficult topic for us, and rightly so. It's a little bit too big an idea for our brains. We we rightly wrestle with important questions like the problem of evil. How can a sovereign God allow such suffering? We struggle to understand how God can hold us responsible for our actions if God is sovereign over our actions. These are important questions, and the Bible has much to say about them. And if you're struggling, if you're chewing on these questions right now, I invite you, please reach out to me, reach out to Ron, Bill, reach out to your community group leader. Let's go grab coffee. I would love to talk about these things. But don't, sometimes what we do is we let the intellectual difficulty, the philosophical difficulty of solving the problem of God's sovereignty, we let it distract us from the way it's meant to function in our soul. We let it distract us from the way Scripture uses it. Ezra chapter 1 is a chapter that absolutely revels in God's sovereignty. It laughs, it sings, it dances, it rejoices in God's sovereignty. And I want to invite you to do the same thing this morning. This The fulfillment of this prophecy, this is a mic drop moment for our God, okay? 150 years before Cyrus wrote this edict, he said, you don't think I can do it? You don't know who I am? I'll tell you his name. His name is Cyrus. Oh, wait, God, that's not a Babylonian name. That couldn't even be the one. Oh, yeah, you know what? That's because Persia is going to conquer Babylon, but you wouldn't know anything about that, okay? This is a God who's moving empires like pieces on a chessboard, Okay, this, this is a big reveal in Old Testament history, but this is also a moment of overwhelming grace and mercy and love from God to his rebellious people. How think, Put yourself in their shoes. You've been in Babylon for somewhere between 50 to 70 years. Okay, When Cyrus comes to power, the faithful Israelites have grown up in Babylon studying Isaiah. So they're reading. They get to Isaiah chapter 44, and they see, oh my goodness, Cyrus. And then they start seeing politics in the city. And all of a sudden, Cyrus comes to power. The Israelites must be meeting in secret all over the city, raising a glass, saying, Aslian. Is on the move. God is at work. It's incredible. We're going to read Psalm 126 together in a few minutes. But folks, the, the Jews, the Israelites are flabbergasted. They are delirious with joy. They cannot believe that God is rescuing them after all they've done. Folks, do not miss the massive encouragement that ought to come. From the fact that our God's the kind of God who can move empires, that our God is the kind of God who turns the heart of a king like water in his hands, that he's the kind of God who can predict predict Cyrus' edict before Cyrus is born, that he's a God who keeps his gracious promises even to a broken and rebellious people. That's the kind of God we serve, and it's meant to encourage us. You know, I don't know what the Lord has in mind for some of you today, but, but my ears perked up a little bit when Ron brought his word of encouragement to us about fear, anxiety, worry, um, that our hearts ought to be still. Our hearts can only be still. The, the only thing strong enough, big, big enough, durable enough to give us complete safety is a sovereign God. Are you worried this afternoon? There are many things you could legitimately be worried about are you worried about geopolitical risk the tension between the united states china russia are you worried maybe you come in carrying a burden worried about our environment about global warming how hot is it going to get out there tomorrow maybe it's politics a little closer to home are you worried that the united states is going to repeal the tax advantages that it's traditionally given to the church Are you worried that the state of California is going to make it a hate crime to teach what God's Word teaches about human sexuality? Are you worried about your own mortality, your health? Are you worried about your relationships? There are a thousand things, worries, concerns that you could bring in. Folks, God's sovereignty is a banner over all of those things. It is the only thing strong enough and the only thing durable enough to enable us to walk with joy and courage into tomorrow. And also, so don't miss the encouragement of God's sovereignty, but don't don't miss the warning that is inherent in God's sovereignty. God is the Lord, and there is no other. His purposes are going to stand. Regardless of what you think, regardless of what you do, His plan will succeed. Are you ignoring him today? Are you resisting him? Are you living your life as though there is no sovereign God out there? Oh, we, friends, we ignore him. We resist him at our own peril. Isaiah and Ezra are appealing to us today. God is the Lord, and there is no other. So God made an astounding prediction, a remarkable prediction, a huge promise, and it came true. It came true in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, how are God's people going to respond? The prophecy's there. What are the people going to do? That brings us to point number two, God's people on the move. Let's take a look at verses 5 and 6. Then rose up, we're back in Ezra 1, verses 5 and 6, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Verses 5 and 6 are so simple we just can't rush past the action of 5 and 6 though these people rose up these people received an edict from an emperor that is is not their king a pagan emperor and families whole families nearly 50,000 people the next chapter is going to tell us rise up and they changed their entire life okay these these people these people the oldest of them have been there 70 years plus, okay? Even the, the youngest, the people who are born early on in captivity, they may be 50 years old. Can you imagine living in a city for 50 years in today's world, okay? Anybody? Have you lived in a city for 50 years? You've been here for 50 years? Okay, we got three, okay? This doesn't happen. When you, when you stay in a place for 50 years, guess what? It's your new hometown. This is where you're from now. You might have grandkids in that city, Okay, so this is not, many of these people have never even seen Jerusalem. Okay, this is, and this is no easy journey. This is a long journey. It's, it's about a thousand miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. Okay, about a thousand miles. That's approximately the same distance as from Pasadena to Denver, Colorado. Okay, but there's no cars. There's no airplanes. Okay, there's none of that. These people, old and young, are going to take this journey on foot, and it's not, it's not a safe journey either. A couple chapters further, if you want to flip to Ezra chapter 8, Ezra is going to lead another group of exiles to Jerusalem. But Ezra is so scared of the journey that before they set off, he calls like a few days of prayer and fasting. He's like, this is dangerous. We're, we're not going through, this is not a well-maintained king's highway to Jerusalem. No, we're tracking through lands where people hate the Jews We're tracking through lands where there are robbers just roaming. There's not a nice orderly police force to keep you safe. This is a dangerous journey. Some of these people might die on the journey. And listen, this is not a move to improve their standard of living, okay? There's not nicer houses in Jerusalem. There's not greener grass in Jerusalem. Babylon is a fully functioning city. Babylon has a huge army protecting the city. They have a thriving economy, as we'll see in verse 6, when all this gold and silver starts pouring out. Okay, Babylon is a first world place to be. No, they're going back to Jerusalem. Don't you remember what happened to Jerusalem the third time they rebelled? It was destroyed. And the city is surrounded by people groups who hate the Jews. This is not to improve their standard of living. So what is going on? in the hearts of these people, to make them make such a decision? Well, Psalm 126 gives us what I think is a shocking answer, a window into their hearts. Psalm 126, 1 through 3 says, When the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And listen to this, the Lord has done great things for us and we are joyful. What has happened to these Israelites? They were exiled because they couldn't keep it together, because they did not love the Lord, because they were rebelling against him in Jerusalem. And so they were They had consequences, massive consequences. These are the people who can never bring bring themselves to submit to the Lord. But something happened. There was a prophecy. And then God stretched out his hand to move empires to rescue them against all odds. And finally, it clicked in their heart. It clicked all the way down in their soul. Nothing can stop our God. Nothing can stop him. He's the Lord and there's no other. If we're with him, then we can't fail. And so all of a sudden, they're rushing to pack their bags. They're rushing to go on a dangerous journey. They're risking everything and changing their whole life because something has clicked for them that if they're on mission with that kind of God, there is no safer place to be. That's where we want to be. That's where we need to be. We are laughing. Our mouths are filled with laughter. Our hearts are filled with joy. And we're going on a dangerous journey. That's what happened. To the children of israel look at verse 6 all who are about them aided them with all kinds of things silver gold all kinds of things okay this this fulfills a series of second exodus prophecies doesn't this sound like the exodus when the children of israel plundered egypt what, what picture is emerging in these two verses okay these people made a life-altering decision a dangerous choice to serve God. And God calls the surrounding pagan culture to support and finance the expedition. Folks, this is what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. Are you excited? This is what it's like. We become so convinced of God's love for us. We become so convinced of God's sovereign power over the empires of this world that we are set free to take risks for his mission, for his kingdom. We risk humiliation and embarrassment in the eyes of the culture. We prioritize God and his people more highly than we prioritize our career. We give up material possessions to store our treasure in heaven. We open our homes to share God's love with the community around us, even if they don't look like us, even if they're not quite best friend material, because God showed such love to us that we're going to show love to everybody he sends our way. And if necessary, we risk our very lives because a massive prophecy has been spoken over us too are you aware there's a promise over your life as well death itself has already been defeated now what are we to make of verses 7 through 11 let your eyes go back down there we have an inventory we have temple vessels Surely this is just logistical details. Surely I'm not going to make you sit here for another few more minutes to talk about the vessels. But no, I am. <laughs> because you need to know. You need to know the story of these vessels. Look, look at verse 7 and 8. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. I'm going to need you to come on one more journey with me in the Old Testament, and visit the prophet Daniel. Because if we don't go to Daniel, Daniel's going to tell us what the vessels mean, and it's going to be worth your time. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. The events of Daniel chapter 5 take place about 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar took the temple vessels, okay? So if you're doing your math and you're tracking on the timeline, then you'll know that this is This is only a couple of years before the events of Ezra chapter 1. The elders of the people in Ezra chapter 1, they would be very aware of what happened in Daniel chapter 5. And it would be marking everything they thought about these temple vessels. We're going to start reading. This is chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, then we'll jump to 13 to 31. King Belshazzar, that's Nebuchadnezzar's son... King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Okay, we're we're starting off poorly. All right. Belshazzar, when, when he tasted the wine, that's the Bible's way of telling you that he's about to make the worst drunk decision in the history of those kinds of decisions. When he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought That the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple. The house of God in Jerusalem and the king and his lords and wives and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. If you're in your Bible, skip down to verse 13. Then Daniel was brought before the king. Folks, this is the Daniel. This is the lion's den Daniel, okay? He was part of the first wave of exiles in 605. So by now, he's probably about 70 years old, okay? This this is a a patriarch. He, He is in full form, as you're about to see. "'The king answered and said to Daniel, "'You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, "'whom the king my father brought from Judah. "'I have heard of you.' That the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Man, I hope someone says that about me one day. (laughs) Just solve problems. now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, stop. We can't, we can't move on from that statement without at least acknowledging that Daniel is not here to play games, okay? You don't mess with Daniel. Ooh, doesn't that answer just make your heart burn to follow Jesus with that kind of courage? Man. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. You need to go read about Nebuchadnezzar later, okay? It's a great story. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, listen to this, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was a inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, Tekel and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, And Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being then about 62 years old. Don't forget the timeline. That happened less than five years before these vessels, before Cyrus said, I got to get these vessels out of my treasury. That's what Cyrus is saying. Five years ago, a guy touched the vessels the wrong way. He, he treated him wrong, and that guy died. You don't mess with the God of Israel. You treat these vessels, these vessels are special. Okay, so are you, are you any longer wondering why they made an inventory of these things? I mean, can you imagine Mithridath and Bazaar? handling these things after what happened a couple of years prior, they must be trembling. They're like, hey, make sure you make a note of it, okay? This is number 4,563, okay? They're just trembling. They're making sure they write down every single one of them. I want to make sure, I want everybody to know none of these things got stolen, all of these things got back right where they're supposed to go in Jerusalem in the newly rebuilt temple. That's what's going on with these vessels, What do these temple vessels represent? They represent God's victory over every false god. His victory over the so-called gods of gold and silver. But before we scoff at Belshazzar and the wives and the lords who are drinking their wine and toasting the gods of gold and silver, I think the gods of gold and silver are plenty alive today. Still capable of deceiving us, are they not? <sighs> Perhaps commentary, commentator Derek Kidner captures this moment with the vessels of the house of the Lord the best when he says this. From this prosaic inventory, it is left to us to picture what it may have meant to see this consecrated gold and silver brought out into the light of day every piece of it, a witness to God's sovereign care and the continuance of the covenant. The political kingdom had perished, but not the kingdom of priests. The businesslike transfer of articles counted out from one custodian to another may have been outwardly undramatic, but it was momentous. The closing words of the chapter from Babylonia, To Jerusalem, mark one of the turning points of history. So we have begun our journey through Ezra and Nehemiah. The children of Israel have been freshly reminded that God is a God who's sovereign over empires and that God is a God who keeps his promises even to a rebellious, weak, failed people. And they responded to this prophecy and this promise and this kind of God by risking everything for his mission to go back and rebuild that temple in Jerusalem. What does that mean for us? Well, Brothers and sisters, God has graciously saved us and called us on a mission as well. He set us free in Christ, not from a political enemy like the Persian Empire, but from a much more insidious and deadly enemy, the enemy of sin at at work in our very hearts. The worship team can, can come on up. How do we apply Ezra chapter 1 to our circumstances? Consider that. How do you apply these events to your circumstances? God's sovereignty, it, it is meant to do something inside of you and inside of me. When we become confident in God's promises, that changes us, okay? We banter almost. We talk too lightly about God's promises. If we really believe the promises spoken over us, we are going to lead a radical lifestyle. It is going to set us free to do things we would have never done otherwise. That's how the promises are meant to work, just like this prophecy in Ezra chapter 1. It's meant to turn us into people like Daniel, standing before an emperor, defying him with courage, bold, confident in the Lord. It's meant to make us like the people in Ezra chapter 1 who sold everything and went on a thousand mile journey. We're meant to be laughing and singing as we take risks for Christ, for a God who keeps his promises, for a God who's Lord of history. Like the Pevensey children, you might not have known what you were getting into when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You stumbled into the land of Narnia. You didn't know that it was going to mean a battle with the white witch. But it does, and it's good. Ephesians 2 chapter 10 says that God has prepared in advance for each one of us works, tasks, Missions, that we would walk in them. Deeds have been prepared for you and for me. Aslan is on the move. And the one true king, Jesus Christ, has defeated death. And there is a great prophecy hanging over all these days of the church. And that prophecy is, the king is going to return. Christian, Oh, Christian, I pray that God's word, God's promises, God's sovereignty will stir you to put aside your fear and live boldly on mission for Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word this morning. Father, as we sing, as we worship, as we talk to each other, as we leave, I pray that your word would continue working that it would be like a seed going down into our hearts, that it would be setting us free from fear and hesitancy, that it would be filling us with a joy that is unusual and countercultural and unexplainable, apart from the fact that you are a sovereign God. There is no other, and your word will come true. I pray that we would st- stake our lives on your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.